Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Kay Kimala Doon. Today we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland, Maine, where John Sopko discussed Afghanistan lessons unlearned. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. This program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing our speaker today is George Look, Midcoast Forum President. I'd like to welcome everyone here, as well as those listening to us on the stations of Maine Public Radio, to the 446th meeting of the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations. Today's meeting comes to you from the Elks Event Center in Rockland, Maine, and I'm George Look. The Midcoast Forum was founded in 1983 to invite a foreign affairs expert each month to speak and answer questions on an issue critical to the formulation of U.S. foreign policy. Audios of past forum talks and information about upcoming forum programs are available on our website at midcoastforum.org. If you want to become a member of the forum, you also will find our membership form on the website. To join us, just apply. We are pleased today to have Mr. John Sopko with us to speak on Afghanistan lessons unlearned. With all that's going on recently, it's easy to forget that the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan happened less than a year ago. But Afghanistan is still important. It's still in the news, although not on the front page of the news all the time. So we're pleased to have with us someone who has devoted the last decade of his life to the subject in a key oversight position. John F. Sopko is the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. He was appointed to this position by President Obama in 2012. He has more than 30 years of experience in oversight and investigations as a prosecutor, congressional counsel, and senior federal government advisor. Prior to his Special Inspector General role, Mr. Sopko worked at Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld, LLP, an international law firm headquartered in Washington, D.C., where he had been a partner since 2009. Prior to joining the law firm, Mr. Sopko was with the Department of Commerce, where he managed the department's response to multiple congressional, grand jury, and press inquiries. At the Commerce Department, he also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Enforcement for the Bureau of Export Administration, and Deputy Assistant Secretary for the, Trans for the National Telecommunications and Information Administration. Mr. Sopko was recruited for the Department of Commerce by the Commerce Secretary from his position on the staff of the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. His government experience includes over 20 years on Capitol Hill, where he held key positions in both the Senate and the House of Representatives. Previously, Mr. Sopko was a state and federal prosecutor. He was a trial attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice Organized Crime and Racketeering Section, where he led the first successful federal RICO prosecution of the entire leadership structure of an America La Cosa Nostra crime family. Mr. Sopko began his professional career as a state prosecutor in Dayton, Ohio, with the Montgomery County Prosecutor's Office. He also served as an adjunct professor at American University's School of Justice. Mr. Sopko received a bachelor's degree from the University of Pennsylvania 
and a law degree from Case Western University School of Law. He is a member of the bars of Ohio and of the District of Columbia. John, I would like to wish you a warm welcome to the Mid-Coast Forum. I want to thank you all for coming, and I particularly want to thank uh, that kind introduction. I'm glad uh, you're here, and I hope uh, your expectations uh, li live up to that wonderful introduction. Um, I also only hope I live up to the expectations of former Senator Muskie, who warned that, quote, there is no point in speaking unless you can improve on silence. So with, with that caveat in mind, uh, it is uh, especially important and interesting uh, time to be talking about Afghanistan. As it was alluded to, we are rapidly approaching the one-year anniversary of the fall of Kabul, the fall of the Afghan government, and the rise and success of the Taliban. I know you are planning to hear, as mentioned from my good friend Pam Constable of the Washington Post, uh, she has spent uh, numerous times over in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. So you will get an interesting and I think educational view of what life is really like in Afghanistan right now under Taliban. Uh, given my experience, I thought it might be of interest to discuss some key lessons from our nation's efforts in Afghanistan and really the importance of addressing those lessons uh, for future contingencies around the world. Now, I know many of you worked in the government and you may be familiar with the role of an inspector general. I think we were talking last night at dinner, I think this is the first time you've actually heard from one live and in person, uh, which is kind of scary. Uh, I know some of you may have ha recall that warm, fuzzy feeling you had when it was announced that you're gonna be hearing from an inspector general. There's 70-some independent inspectors general now in the government, federal government, and, but I wanna talk about my agency a little bit because it's kind of unique among the IGs. Uh, as, I, as was mentioned, for the last 10 years since my appointment by President Obama, uh, I've had the honor to head that tobacco-sounding acronym of an agency called SIGAR, with an S, Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Its mission, and mission of myself and the staff, is to identify waste, fraud, and abuse in the government and their government projects and programs while recommending ways to improve government efficiency. Now, the reason Congress created SIGAR, and we're a temporary agency, and I'm a firm believer in temporary agencies, I think we have too many government agencies lasting too long. They should be, a lot of them should be temporary like us. But the reason we were created by Congress, it really boils down to dollars and cents. By the time I was appointed in 2012, we were spending more money on reconstruction, which is basically a fancy term for development aid, in Afghanistan than the next eight largest aid recipients of the United States combined. To date, the U.S. government, which means you, the taxpayer, uh, have spent $146 billion with a B on reconstruction in Afghanistan. And it may surprise some of you, we are still spending billions in Afghanistan right now, even though the Taliban have taken control. 
that total amount, just to put it in context, that total amount is more than was spent by the U.S. government to rebuild all of Europe during the Marshall Plan, just to put it in context. Uh, and that does not include the amount of money we spent on warfighting. The warfighting was an additional $840 billion. Now, SIGAR has issued under my uh, leadership over 700 audits and other reports making over 1,200 recommendations to federal agencies to recover funds, improve agency oversight, and increase program effectiveness, saving the taxpayer approximately $2.3 billion. In addition, SIGAR's criminal investigators, and we have criminal investigative authority, uh, have resulted in 163, I think, convictions and recovery of $1.6 billion in fines and restitutions. So to date, we have saved for the U.S. taxpayer approximately $4 billion. Lastly, under my watch, and I think it's the most lasting uh, effect of my little agency, is that of all those 70 inspectors general, we are the only inspector general which has a dedicated staff to trying to develop lessons we have learned from Afghanistan and how to apply them to other activities around the world. Now, I'm proud, as you may assume, of our work. Um, and I'm proud that uh, what SIGAR is continuing to do, and we will eventually go out of existence probably in the next year or so as the funds finally dwindle down. Uh, and honestly, I believe we made a difference, we at SIGAR. That said, obviously, the United States and its allies did not achieve the goal of establishing a sustainable, secure, and democratic Afghan state. So the question before us, and I think before policymakers and before Congress should be, is whether after 20 years of effort, one trillion dollars in U.S. taxpayer dollars spent, more than 2,300 U.S. servicemen and women killed, and more than 20,000 wounded, what can we learn from that experience to improve our chances of successes somewhere else in the world? Now, you may be saying, like many people in Capitol Hill and in the government say, we're never going to take on that mission again. We're never going to do that. That's exactly what we said after Vietnam. That's exactly what we said after Iraq. But whether you call it reconstruction, stabilization, nation building, security sector assistance, every expert we have spoken to in the government, in academia, in our foreign allies government say the U.S. and its allies will get involved somewhere else, sometime else, in something similar to our Afghanistan adventure. Now, SIGAR's Lessons Learned program was created at the recommendation of a number of senior uh, U.S. military generals and some senior uh, State Department officials to try to capture those lessons to improve what we've already should have learned at great cost. And I allude to the uh, I'm glad I brought only 40 because I see they're all gone. Uh, this basically will summarize what I'm talking about. These are, the title was, What We Need to Learn 
lessons from 20 years in Afghanistan. And that's what I'll be basically talking about. You know, it's interesting when I talk about lessons learned as an aside. And this is a little funny of all, like, lots of things in Afghanistan. Funny, eh, but still serious. Um, early on in my work there, one of my staff discovered a study commissioned in 1988 by the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, entitled, quote, A Retrospective Review of Assistance to Afghanistan, 1950 to 1979. Now, many of its conclusions, we read it and we actually published it and put it up on our website, Many of its conclusions of this Lessons Learned report, that 1988 Lessons Learned report, were relevant and applicable to the U.S. government's then ongoing reconstruction efforts. But like I say, it's humorous, but not so funny. We could not find anyone in USAID or the State Department who had ever heard of it or who had ever read it. Now, I took that to heart when we stood up our Lessons Learned program eight years ago. Uh, namely, there is a need, if you do a Lessons Learned report, to publicize it. Don't hide it under a bushel basket, and don't classify it, and require people to file FOIA requests to try to get it. We're kind of unique about the IGs about that. Everything we do, unless it's classified, and very little of our work is classified, or we all have clearances, is put up on the website almost immediately. We publish everything. We're rare among IGs. Even today, some IGs, the only way you can get their reports is you have to file a FOIA. Now, as much as the American public's attention has moved on from Afghanistan, SIGAR's reports may seem destined to end up in that same bureaucratic black hole as the 1988 USAID report. But what history tells us is that our experience in Afghanistan can and should inform U.S. efforts in countries where corrupt governments, terrorism, insurgencies, or other violence imperils our nation's national security. If we do not learn the lessons now and institutionalize necessary reforms, we will be destined to remain on the hamster wheel of history repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Now, having issued so many reports about the U.S. experience in Afghanistan and the lessons and findings, I could keep speaking for about a week or so, but I don't think you want to do that. And as I said, I'm recuperating from knee surgery or knee replacement, so I will be brief. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll be carrying me off the uh, podium. Uh, and I want to highlight just four areas real quickly, which I think are really important for understanding Afghanistan and understanding how it applies to future work around the world. The first one, and admittedly, I'm slightly biased, is the need for independent oversight at the very outset of a U.S. foreign involvement. As you may recall, the U.S. sent troops to Afghanistan in October of 2002 and the reconstruction mission started shortly thereafter. At that point, with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda seemingly on the run, Afghanistan was largely considered a post-conflict country. But 
By 2006, it became apparent that it was not going well. And increasing troop levels and spending reflected what Washington does best, throw money at a problem. By 2007, one year later, U.S. Reconstruction spending was nearly three times what it had been the year before. Unfortunately, the existing oversight mechanisms and agencies were overwhelmed, and SIGAR wasn't created for another year. Now, my predecessors at SIGAR were tasked with standing up a brand new agency from scratch and getting it operational. And many of you who have worked in government or industry know how long that takes and how difficult that is. All the while they were doing that, billions of dollars were still being shoveled out the door in Afghanistan, and agencies became under immense pressure to spend it, spend it quickly, and to show results. But, as we have learned from Afghanistan and what we reported, delayed oversight comes at a cost and not always financial. Our reports have identified deficiencies which were ingrained in our assistance and training programs from inception, which ultimately were significant factors in the collapse of the Afghan security forces in government 20 years later. By the time SIGAR was finally up and running, so much money had been obligated that we had little opportunity to conduct proper oversight of it, although we tried. You know, I've testified on a number of occasions that I and my staff feel like the Detective Columbo or Inspector Morse. We show up at the scene of the crime, the body has been removed, and all we have, if we're lucky, is a chalk outline. The money is already gone, and by the time you do the audit, you're never going to catch it. Uh, despite that frustration, two cigar reviews that we have done have found that at least 30% of the money of the programs we looked at, 30% of it was wasted or stolen. $3 out of every 10. Now just imagine how much more waste, fraud, and abuse we could have identified and we could have possibly stopped if we had been established, if oversight, significant independent oversight was established in 2002 when the money started flowing. But it's more than just dollars and cents. For example, SIGAR raised concerns for years about how the system the U.S. government set up to pay, and we paid all the Afghan soldiers, the police, their teachers, every civil servant over there. What we discovered is the system never could document who they were and if they even existed. And as it turned out later, thousands and thousands of police and soldiers were ghosts for which we, you, the American taxpayer, paid the salaries, paid their uniforms, paid for their guns, their bullets, their tanks, their gas, everything. The long tail for all of those people and the system never could save the money. And this led basically and ultimately to the collapse of the Afghan military and police. SIGAR also routinely identified serious safety hazards to both U.S. and Afghan forces due to poor construction that wasn't properly overseen, including buildings that literally melted in the rain, bridges and roads that collapsed, burn pits 
that poisoned our soldiers and barracks that were nearly as flammable as the Hindenburg. In short, independent oversight mechanisms need to be baked into the cake from the very beginning. As one senior four-star general told me, oversight needs to be quote-unquote mission critical to an operation. Now, I understand, and many of you probably say, well, we need to get that money out fast. In the midst of a crisis, we've got to get that money out fast. And we can worry about oversight later. I warn you, if we worry about oversight later, we got serious problems baked in to that, those programs. I remind you that the Inspector General Act, which I am operating under, was created in 1978, the first year I started working for the U.S. government. Surely by now, we should have enough experience to be able to quickly incorporate independent oversight mechanisms into any urgent response to a crisis overseas and not have to wait eight to ten years after the money starts flowing. Now, while I'm on the subject of waste, fraud, and abuse, some of my most interesting topics, let me turn to the second lesson we need to learn in Afghanistan. Namely, how corruption and our role in exacerbating it undermine our own goals in the process. And actually, I don't know if I should, but I should identify one of the people here today, his brother, Jim Wasserstrom, who worked for me, actually wrote, I think, the best report, there he is, on corruption that has ever come out of our agency. And his brother did a, a tremendous job in that. It's a small world. I mean, it is amazing in Maine who you meet at any, any given time and place. It's just fantastic, and it was good to, to see you and say the best to your brother. Now, let me be clear about corruption. Afghanistan was not exactly Norway, if you looked at the Transparency International Corruption Indices before Reconstruction started. You know, I kept reminding people, you know, we're not in Norway, we're not in Iowa. We should design programs that take that into consideration, and that's one of the points that Jim made in that report. Nevertheless, it is clear from our research, from Jim's research, from everybody we talked to, that the U.S. made a bad situation much, much worse. As I mentioned before, the bureaucratic instinct in resolving an intractable problem, a wicked problem, as you say in Maine, is to throw money at it. This imp impulse intensifies when government agencies face deadlines to resolve those problems. For example, during the surge of U.S. military forces and civilian officials into Afghanistan, U.S. reconstruction spending was equivalent to more than 100% of Afghanistan's GDP and more than double the country's ability to absorb it. And there's a term called the absorptive rate in uh, development, and some of you who have worked in development will know about that. And they say in developing countries, the assistance should never exceed either 15 to 30 percent, depending on how developed it is, of a developing country. We were exceeding 100 percent in just the United States. I'm not talking about what our allies were also giving to Afghanistan, what the UN and the World Bank was pumping in. As President Ghani once told me, it was like money falling, mana falling from the sky. 
He said, are you surprised people didn't steal it? I mean, you'd have to be a fool not to do that. So corruption was endemic before the surge, but it metastasized and swelled to an unprecedented level. By 2010, the Afghan National Security Advisor told our embassy, quote, corruption is not just a, a problem for the system of governance in Afghanistan, it is the system of governance in Afghanistan, unquote. U.S. spending and all of the allies, there was 30-some countries involved there, just totally overwhelmed the systems for ensuring accountability and effectiveness. For example, internal USAID rules and protocols say that a, a manager, a contracting officer, you would call them, must only oversee $10 million in grants. On average, they were overseeing over $100 million in grants. So by spending money faster than it could be accounted for, faster than it could be absorbed into the economy, faster than it could be overseen by either U.S. or other oversight bodies, the U.S. ultimately achieved the opposite of what it intended that money to do. It fueled corruption, rampant corruption, which delegitimized the Afghan government, and that's what the Taliban used to recruit. And it increased, therefore, the insecurity in that country. This is not to say that the Afghan government, its warlords, its officials, its businessmen did not take advantage of a system and bear no responsibility. But simply blaming corruption, like many people do in this country, on the Afghans is not only missing the point, it will ultimately lead to similar tragedy in some other country if the U.S. government does not, number one, understand how its actions can contribute to and exacerbate corruption, and two, take appropriate measures to minimize our corrupting influence. Now, the final two interlinked areas I'll highlight very quickly are planning and personnel. Those of you who have served in the U.S. government know the executive and legislative branches are challenged by what I like to call short-term-itis. As we all know, budget cycles are one year. Congressional sessions last two. Presidential terms last four. Everyone in Washington is focused on showing success under unrealistic timelines that do not reflect the reality on the ground, especially when pursuing development in a war zone. To paraphrase John Paul Vaughn's comments about Vietnam, in Afghanistan, we didn't fight one 20-year war. We fought 20 one-year wars. Moreover, every administration I dealt with wanted to get out as quickly as they could and planned accordingly. Just for example, from July 2010 also, to last August, I worked with six different U.S. ambassadors, six different U.S. commanding generals, eight different U.S. commanders of the military train advise and assist effort. In a volunteer military and foreign service that wants to limit the time their officers spend in hardship posts, this may be inevitable. 
but we need to acknowledge that there are problems of short terms of duty and find ways to address it. Now, I have often highlighted and been quoted in the press talking about what we call the annual lobotomy. Every summer, we would watch all of these senior, I would say all, probably 70, 80% of the U.S. aid and State Department officials leave every summer. And all of the knowledge, all of the contacts went with them. And then a new group would come in who barely knew where the latrines were, and they were taking over. Now, what do you think that means to continuity of a mission and continuity and effectiveness? If you in private sector and industry, if every year every senior manager leaves, what do you think happens to your bottom line? We don't know how much that affected our understanding of the problem and our capability, but it is a serious problem. And I don't mean to pick on just state and aid and the civilian side. There were similar challenges with the military. One senior general noted how a new unit, military unit, would arrive in Afghanistan to work with training uh, an Afghan military unit. And they would assess, after we were there for a while, quote, this is going to be difficult, unquote. Halfway through their development, they would say, quote, progress is being made. By the time they left, they determined that, quote, the corner had been, has been turned and goals have been met. The unit replacing them would come in, assess the situation, and say, quote, this is going to be difficult. And the whole process would start over. And we documented this because we looked at the assessments done by the military when they did assessments on the Afghans. That was a problem we saw. Uh, and, and we called it the shark tooth. You come in, the Afghans can't walk and chew gum. Okay, well, by the 10, they're great. They can storm Normandy. The next guy comes in, nah, they can't chew gum, they can't walk, they can't shoot, they can't drive, they can't do nothing. By the time they leave, ah, they're on the way to not only take Normandy, but take the rest of Europe. So it's the shark tooth. It was totally unrealistic. And I'm not saying these military officers lied. They're under pressure to so, show success because the administration wants to show success so they can get out. That is the problem. You know, I, I've been uh, accused of saying that people lied to Congress. Well. I don't know if they lied. You know, um, what they did do was they're under tremendous pressure and personally the show success so they can get a promotion, but also because this cycle we have, these one years and two year situations with appropriations, they had to show that the money was being well spent. And you realize that with each new group coming in, there was usually a new approach or a new strategy every six months to a year. Now, for the average Afghan official, the war began in the 1979. But our civilian and military personnel were eyeing the departure date from the moment their boots hit the Afghan soil. And they were claiming success as they left the country, whether they were on a six-week tour of duty some people were on six-week tours of duty. 
six months, or a year-long rotation. But personnel problems are not limited to just length of rotations in country. I doubt I will shock many of you when I say that our work identified that civilian and military agencies don't always play well together in the sandbox. Nor do we do a good job of coordinating with our NATO and international allies. Effective coordination between civilian agencies and militaries was critical if the U.S. government was going to rebuild the Afghan institutions. But bureaucratic clashes between agencies were abundant, often because of resource disparities. At the height of the surge, for example, there were just under 100,000 U.S. servicemen and women in Afghanistan. There was never more than 600 USAID personnel. Although a variety of civilian agencies contributed personnel to the mission in Afghanistan, staff numbers never came close to approaching the military's numbers, despite the political nature of redevelopment in Afghanistan. This imba imbalance in resources naturally elevated military objectives over civilian ones. Because civilian state and USAID officials in the field were dependent on the military for food, housing, transportation, and sometimes security, they had little choice but to go along if the military insisted that they implement a program or project in a far too dangerous place for the program to ever succeed. Now problems weren't just limited to the one USAID official in some embedded with some military unit in a far-flung province we found that there were times when senior embassy officials in Kabul didn't know of a military-generated program or project until they literally were given the keys by the military unit when it left. Now, this isn't to blame the military. They had a mission, just like the civilian agencies did, and they executed it. If civilian agencies did not have the same reach or resources, well, is that DOD's fault? Or is it a result of a fundamental problem back in Washington about the level of political support to, for more robustly resourcing state and aid? Now, speaking of expeditionary diplomacy, I have one last point I want to make. And that's a lesson I saw firsthand and during my many trips to Afghanistan, which needs to be acknowledged by Congress, respective administrations, and the American people. Namely, effective diplomacy or development work cannot and never should be held to be risk-free. We don't say our soldiers, when they go into combat, it's got to be risk-free. But we do put that label, I call it the, the Benghazi effect, on state and aid and other civilian officials. Now, I am not talking about being reckless. Trust me, I understand this firsthand. You've got to take every precaution to keep your employees safe. I have the firsthand experience because we had over 50 of my staff spread all over Afghanistan. And some were there, particularly when Herat was attacked by the Taliban and a number of poor people were killed in the process. So I understand it. And also, through nothing other than, I would say, dumb luck, 
I personally avoided a number of close encounters with the Taliban, so I appreciate the risk of working in such an environment. But over the course of my tours of duty, and I used to go there approximately four times a year from anywhere from five days to a month at a time, I saw a growing retreat of U.S. civilian personnel and to a lesser extent military personnel. Especially during the last few years, I would say from probably 2017 on, uh, prior to the Taliban takeover, numerous foreign service officers served their entire tour of duty without leaving the confines of the U.S. Embassy. And if they did leave the embassy, they never got beyond the green zone, which was a protected zone um, in Kabul. Again, we may never know how much that affected real-time analysis of the situation in Afghanistan prior to the collapse, or how it impacted the effectiveness of our programs. But we got to permit the State Department and aid to take more calculated risks, and that's important. It's not that they should, but it's very important that Washington politicians and political pundits allow them to do their job. You cannot do effective diplomacy development or reconstruction by Zoom. And that is the truth. I acknowledge that the level of risk increased from my first visit in 2012 to my last in 2021. During my first couple of trips there, my assigned security detail jokingly said they were more concerned about an American in the embassy targeting me for our reports than they were to Taliban or other terrorists. And I admit, they may not have been wrong. Uh, I got, had some real frosty meetings with ambassadors and aid officials. Uh, but by, certainly by my last visit, the security situation had deteriorated. But let me just tell you, it reaches the point of the absurd. When your State Department security detail could, would not allow you to cross a secured street between secured buildings within the secured embassy compound to attend a secured meeting. I know the State Department has come from um, enormous pressure to avoid casualties, and I hope they never suffer another one. But our government officials need to be able to go out and do their jobs in less than ideal security circumstances, or what's the point of having them there at all? So, let me conclude. And I know you're saying, well, John, oh, gee, that was really nice. You're making me depressed. Uh, you gave me all these problems. How are you going to fix them? Well, to use that main vernacular, I admit many of these problems are wickedly difficult. And they may make you very uncomfortable. I had somebody come up to me the other day because I talked to him last night. He said, God, that was depressing. Um, well, let's take what E.B. White said to Hart. Quote, it's better to feel bad in Maine than to feel good anywhere else. <laughs> so feel good that we do make a number of 100-some recommendations in our dozens of lessons learned reports. And since many of you are retired or on vacation, you have time to read them all, all about 7,000 pages. Uh, and, you know, and that's about 1,000 footnotes in each one. 
Then also remember, if you do get those reports, they're also good for swatting black flies in the spring. But in all seriousness, let me just draw back to one important point. And what you really should take away from this talk and take away from what we are talking about in our Lessons Learned program. It goes back to something that Benjamin Franklin actually said. And that is, failing to plan is planning to fail. For all the time, times we say, or politicians say, or ambassadors say, or, or officials in Washington say, we're never going to do something like Afghanistan again, we will. The problem is we're not planning for it. Jack Keane, former vice chief of staff of the Army, noted that, quote, after Vietnam, we purged ourselves of everything that had to do with irregular warfare or insurgency because it had to do with how we lost a war. In hindsight, that was a bad decision, unquote. Uh, even when we purged the system of all we've learned, whether it be after Vietnam or the 1988 U.S. aid study I mentioned earlier, we still find ourselves in a situation like Iraq and Afghanistan. The only consequence is that we're less prepared and less equipped to address them effectively. Former National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley told Cigar that, quote, we just don't have a post-conflict stabilization model that works. Every time we do one of these things, it's a pickup game. I don't have confidence that we, if we do it again, we would do it any better. And one of the best ambassadors I ever worked with, Ryan Crocker, told us, quote, you have to start working on it before you need it. Yet after the last two decades in Afghanistan and Iraq, state, aid, and DOD have all signaled that they do not see large-scale reconstruction missions as likely in the future. The 2018 Stabilization Assistance Review, which was done by all three agencies, says, quote, there is no appetite to repeat large-scale reconstruction effects, unquote. So we're not going to prepare for them. Well, just because you have no appetite doesn't mean we won't still end up at that buffet table of reconstruction. In our Lessons Learned report on stabilization, we note, and I end with this, there will likely be times in the future when insurgent control over a particular area or population is deemed an imminent threat to U.S. interests. Does that sound like Crimea and parts of Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts in 2014? We could say it won't happen again all we want, but we're already witnessing various levels of U.S. engagements in areas where insurgents threaten U.S. interests in far-flung places like Sahel, Somalia, Mozambique, and Syria, among others, to say nothing of what's happened over the last three and a half months in Ukraine. There are those, particularly in Washington, who would like to put the entirety of our Afghan experience in a box, lock it away, and say it will never be, we'll never do it again, and don't talk about it. Well, I would counter by saying the only question is whether the next time we want to learn from the mistakes that we have experienced at great cost in blood and treasure, 
or as we've done all too often in the past, make it up as we go and see how things turn out. With that, I thank you for listening so attentively, and I open to your questions. Thank you, thank you very much, John. Um, a good summary of, I think, of where we are or aren't on this. Um, I, some water. Yeah. I usually take uh, the opportunity while we're collecting uh, questions from our members to ask the first question. And I was quite curious about how receptive U.S. government agencies have been to, how receptive government agencies have been to the cigar recommendations, and if they are receptive to them, does that, is that sustained over time, or they say, oh, the great recommendation, and then it kind of goes away? It, it <clears throat> depends. Uh, it's been very receptive at the worker bee level, because we go out and brief people at the, uh, the, the various military academies and at the very institutions. Um, less receptive uh, with some of the people who were involved with these disasters. Uh, and, and that's to be expected. Um, it's been very receptive with some members of Congress. But you got to realize, we're an IG. Every time we issue a report, we gore somebody's ox. And those people are usually pretty important, either on the Hill, off the Hill, in the Pentagon, outside the Pentagon, in Foggy Bottom or otherwise. So there's a lot of people say, ah, they'll come back and say, we're never going to do it again. Go away, John. Bye-bye. See you later. But uh, I think we're getting good reception. Will it last? I don't know. That's one of the reasons why I'm giving these presentations. I think we should. I think every IG should be doing this. We should have a lessons learned center somewhere in the government to learn lessons on every problem, whoever deals with uh, national security or deals with health care or deals with social security or deals with all of these intractable, wickedly difficult issues that our country is facing. And there's um, several questions here also related to um, Ukraine. Please outline lessons to be applied in Ukraine or how the lessons you've learned could help us in Ukraine because we're, we're kind of at the beginning of that one, not at the end. You, you know, we are, and that is, that's, in a way, that's good. I mean, you know, many times we're accused that we issue our reports after the money's been wasted. You know, we're like uh, Inspector Clouseau, you know, the body's been removed. So what we're saying is now is the time. I mean, we've poured, I don't know what the figure is now, in the Ukraine. I'm not saying the Ukrainians are thieves or incompetent. I'm not saying our government is. I'm just saying that's a lot of money going into a country, and, and that's overwhelming. I can assure you, I have not done a study because we don't do Ukraine. I assure you it's overwhelming the oversight mechanisms of uh, whomever. So we ought to start thinking about setting up those mechanisms to try to catch it. The one thing we learned, we waited too long to do it in Afghanistan. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson is know where you're working. Ukraine is not Norway. It's not Maine. You know, the Ukraine was not too much higher than Afghanistan on the Transparency uh, International's list on corruption beforehand. Now, the, I'm not implying anything bad about the Ukrainians, but it is not uh, 
uh, you know, a, a, a place that we really are 100% certain about rule of law and all of that. So she, she to take it in mind. I mean, let's be prepared this time. Not wait 10 years and say, oops, wow, that was a stupid mistake we made. Well, you know, you got a 10-year-long Petri dish called Afghanistan, and we've dropped a whole bunch of bacteria, and we know what happens when you don't deal with it, when you don't use penicillin. You know, it festers. So that's all I'm just saying. Those are some of the things. Again, several questions uh, somewhat related here. Um, this one seems to be the clearest. If every administration was in a hurry to leave Afghanistan, why did the departure go so badly? Presumably, these administrations planned for departure, or did they? Well, I, I'm going to take a pass on that, <laughs> solely because, I mean, we haven't looked at it. And it, uh, it wasn't pretty. <laughs> we all saw it. Um, I don't know. You know, I really don't know. We, we, that is not my job. I got certain jurisdiction, and the withdrawal doesn't fall onto, under it. Um, I'm curious, just like whoever the questioner is, what happened? Why wasn't it done well? But that's not my job. We actually were asked by some members of Congress to look at it. Uh, we went to the state IG, and uh, I think Homeland Security was doing it, and DOD IG, and basically they were the best ones to do it. So, you know, we, we begged off. So it's a good question. I, I'm, I'm interested, too, as a taxpayer. This one a little different. Um, in World War II, there was no attempt to do reconstruction while war fighting was still going on. Wouldn't that have been a better model than fighting the war and doing reconstruction all at once? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, it's a lot easier to do reconstruction when they're not shooting at you. And, uh, but sometimes you have to do it. That's all I'm saying is sometimes you have to do it. It's going to be in a war-torn area with poor government, poor rule of law, a major narcotics problem. Gee, it sounds like Colombia, Bolivia, and a number of countries down in uh, Latin America that I worked in when I was on the hill. So all I'm saying is it's not a small, great idea. You'd prefer not to. I'm certain USAID would not want to do it, but sometimes you got to do it. So let's learn from the petri dish of Afghanistan. So how, just how much of the problem for reconstruction both in Afghanistan and elsewhere, do the cultural differences recognized or misunderstood? That's what I just talked about. I mean, it was, it's, it's, it's an important problem. Uh, you know, my wife works, she's going to hate this because every time I mention her, she loses a contract or something like that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, she works in uh, the stands, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, I mean, all the stands except Afghanistan. And she also works elsewhere, but, but you know, she's going to kill me on this. But anyway, you know, she says a lot of times she was brought in by corporate America or government agencies and said it's almost like if they were working... Uh, and you probably can say it better than I do. It's like working on the moon. You know, somebody has to explain to you what it means because it's not the same as the United States. It's not the same as what's going on here. And I think that's a common problem everywhere, uh, that we assume everybody, if they speak English, they're just like us, you know? And they're not. There, there's a, there's a, a lot more to it. Hun, did I screw up? No. <laughs>
Uh, here's someone who wants to know if you were at all involved in evaluations uh, associated with the $83 billion of military equipment left in Afghanistan. Yes, we did look at that, and it wasn't that much. That's how much was spent totally. Uh, you know, a lot of it was used up and blown up and stolen. So not a full $83 billion. Unfortunately, DOD doesn't have good records because of the uh, quick departure of how much is still there. But there's uh, been a number of uh, reports now by the media that a lot of the weapons we left in Afghanistan are now going to other insurgents and criminal groups uh, around uh, the globe. That's a good one, I think. Has any country ever had any success in influencing Afghanistan in the past 100 years? You know, that's another good question. I, hopeless? I, you know, I, I remember somebody telling me early on saying, you know, the thing with Afghanistan is nobody uh, wants to be there, but nobody wants anybody else to be there. And uh, so it has become sort of the graveyard of empires and the graveyard of countries. I mean, uh, the czarist Russia tried to get in there, Russia later decided to go in there, communist Russia, USSR. The Brits tried it a number of times. Um, it, it, it's a tough country. It, they're, they're, uh, it's, a tough, uh, it's a tough environment and a tough culture. So I can't, I can't really name one that worked, okay? I know we didn't. So, so let me return to this cultural question because it's one that I'm very interested in. Should setting up a stable and sustainable democratic Afghanistan ever have been our goal? Isn't that nature building? Aren't nation building is, you know. Na yeah, nation building is something, you know, it's funny. That's a term that's always defined in the negative. We don't do nation building. That's not nation building. I don't know what nation building is. I'll give you an example. If I give an Afghan soldier a, uh, an M16, is that nation building? If I give him a manual written in Dari or Pashtun, uh, that explains how it works. Is that nation building? I mean, I don't know what nation building is. It's another term and all that. Should we have done that? Well, here's the point. I'm an inspector general. I don't do policy. I do process. Congress and the administrations tell me what the policy is, and I, like a good federal employee, support that policy. My job is to come in and say, are you accomplishing it, or are there better ways to accomplish it? But it's up to Congress. So Congress, in its infinite wisdom, and uh, the various administrations wanted to do what they call nation-building, although they never wanted to say it's nation-building, but it was to create a, a democratic, uh, you know, country that would uh, be able to keep terrorism out of the country. And uh, uh, if that's nation building, it's nation building. So I don't know if it, would, it, it works. It's very difficult. This the one thing I can tell you is it takes a long time. I mean, um, I had aid officials telling me, development officials and experts saying, this is ridiculous. I mean, you know, the military or Congress or whomever wants us to design you know, stabilization here, and we got six months to do it. I remember talking to some poor woman, she was an American who was living in Italy, who was supposed to come in and uh, set up a uh, 
uh, a program to increase the um, these, uh, marketing of goats in Afghanistan. So you probably heard about this, where we shipped, we paid to ship sexy white Italian goats into Afghanistan to copulate with, you know, probably not so bright uh, Afghan goats, <laughs> but who were sexually deprived, and, and create super goats, okay? This was a brainy idea of a DOD program. Yeah, DOD program, sex, goats, not good. So anyway, but anyway, we spent billions of millions of dollars on it. So anyway, she came in and she said, this was ridiculous. They wanted to do what would take five to ten years. I don't know if there's anybody here who raises goats or llamas. Yeah. It takes five to ten years. They wanted to do it in six months. Okay, so what happened? The goats came in. The goats were happy. Um, you know, some of them were. Uh, and some were eaten. And the rest of them died because uh, it didn't work. So, you know, there's certain things you can't do. It's like with poppy production. You know, you can't come in and plant a tree and say, okay, that's going to have uh, nuts and berries on it, and you can sell it, and you don't have to do poppy. Oh, well, the tree takes 10 years to grow. So what do you do in those 10 years? And, and, and that's the problem, you know? We, we, when, when, you, when speed, you got to do it fast. You got to show success. We, we got to let the development people actually do development. Let's be honest. And that's one of the criticisms I have. I call it, you know, uh, you know uh, hubris and mendacity are the two words that I was once asked by a congressman, is there one word you can describe Afghanistan? And I said, no, two, hubris and mendacity. <laughs> you know, a hubris that we actually could turn Afghanistan into little Norway. And a mendacity that we told Congress and the taxpayers we were doing it over the last 20 years. So, you know. We could go on a long time. We have a lot of great questions. But I, <laughs> I want to add I have just one final one, which I think is a good conclusion here. Do you ever deliver good news as an inspector general? Yes. <laughs> I thought this was an upbeat good news conversation. Because the good news is if we learn the lessons and are prepared the next time, we won't waste the money. That's the good news. Thank you very much. Really great. Thank you. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from John Zopko. If you missed part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from our alarm clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, Eiji Kimaladun. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.